Can we just take a moment to say thank you to the folks who lead us in worship, uh, for the folks who lead us in the music part of our worship. I'm so grateful for them. And we really are blessed to have a variety of people, just a number of people who, who can do that with us on a regular basis. I'm thankful for that. Take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. One of the things I want to challenge you with, before we read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, really the entire chapter is what we're going to cover, but we're only going to read a piece of it. But one of the things I want to challenge you to is this idea that Solomon had. I really, I like his idea, but I'm also going to tell you that it's a dangerous idea. So I want to challenge you to be careful with it, but I also want to challenge you to consider doing it. And so here's the thing that, that, that Solomon did. Solomon was running this big test. He was running an experiment. He had been given some wisdom by God. When he was younger, God had come to him and said, because of my, my servant David, David was Solomon's father. Because of my servant David, I'd like to bless you, Solomon. And as a young child, Solomon had, he had the foresight to say, well, okay, God, if you could bless me in any way, what I'd really like to have is wisdom. That's what I'd like to have. He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for riches or popularity or power. It's that, you know, he's a king, so it's that time of kings when it's really just kind of dangerous to sit on the throne, you know. So he could have asked for security or safety. He could have asked God to kill his enemies and make certain his enemies could never kill him. He could have asked him for anything. But what Solomon asked for was for wisdom. And so God said, okay, I'll bless you with wisdom. He was really pleased with what, uh, with what Solomon asked for. And he did. So here's Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, and he gets to this space in his life. And maybe you've been there. I don't know how old you are, how young you are, but maybe you've just gotten to this space in your life where you're thinking, for some reason, I'm just empty on the inside. I've got some things, and I've had some success, and I've known some failure, and I've been through the, some middle of stuff, but I just... Why do I feel so lost and alone? Why do I feel so empty or frustrated on the inside? Well, Solomon was one of those men who had everything and, and still struggled with that feeling. So he decides, okay, God's given me wisdom. I'm going to use what I have to run some experiments, to run some tests. And actually, through the entire book of Ecclesiastes, what you see in Ecclesiastes is Solomon's tests. And he comes to that conclusion that we've already talked about, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, that at the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for this is the whole duty of humanity. And so I guess I want to challenge you to that idea that, uh, that before we ever read the passage, that what if during this sermon series, what if during this series, as we're going through Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 12, that whole season, what if you ran a little test of your own? What if, instead of doing everything the way you normally do it, you tried some things outside the ordinary? What if you just ran a little experiment on your own? One of the experiments we've already talked about this morning, the idea that I might memorize a scripture or two, that I might memorize some verses of scripture, maybe that would be a little experiment to see that you could run. And, and maybe with a little more scripture tucked away in your heart, maybe, you, maybe that would influence the way you think and the way you feel a little bit more. Maybe your habit is only to show up for worship like this or for small group Bible study once in a while. Maybe it's once every two or three weeks or once, once a month. I don't know what your habit is, but whatever your habit is, maybe if during the course of this series you changed your habit just a little bit and said, you know, during this series, I'm not going to miss it all. I'm going to go to small group Bible study and I'm going to come to worship every Sunday. I'm going to come be a part of that. Maybe you could run a little experiment and just see how that would work. I think that'd be an interesting idea. Maybe in your family, you're the spender instead of the saver. Does anybody know a family like that? Who will just confess I'm sitting next to the spender? No, um, no, yeah, I'm, yeah, don't do that. Don't confess that for each other. Maybe during the course of this series, maybe you two should swap roles. 
maybe, maybe you should be the saver for the next six or eight weeks. And maybe your, your spouse should be the one who is the one doing the spending. Maybe you should swap those. Just test. Just, just run a little experiment and just see what happens at the end of that. You know, Scripture has some really interesting financial instructions, and one of them is about not going into debt. So maybe over these next six weeks, you just say, I'm not going to use a credit card for six weeks. I'm going to try to do everything with cash. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I'm not saying you're dishonoring God if you don't do these experiments. I'm just simply saying... The life you have is the life you have, right? Because of the choices you've made and the things that have been done to you. So why not, for six weeks, try something different? Why not? You see, that's exactly what Solomon was doing. And he used godly wisdom to pursue these things, to pursue these questions. And so what I'd like us to do right now is to just read the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We can see where he is in his own personal experiment. And one of the things we like to do here is we like to honor the reading of the Word of God by standing up. And so I'll invite you to stand with me. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, you might be able to get it on your phone or your tablet. It'll also be up here on the screen behind me. And so you can just read along with me as I read out loud. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is where we are. And it says, beginning in verse 1, I said in my heart, remember it's Solomon talking, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what else? What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. So basically in that verse he's saying, I tried, tried a little bit of wine, but I stayed wise while I was doing it. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but... Yeah, that's what he says right there. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep, keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the tool, toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks. You can have a seat for just a moment. That'd be great. Isn't that interesting? He tried everything. I tried pleasure. I tried wine. Wine, women, and song. They're all right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Wine, wine, women, and song. It's all right there. I tried all that. I tried really big things. I built houses. I got a lot of stuff. I got a lot of money. I, I, I built big things, the toil and work of my hands. Actually, if you were to finish reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2, which actually I would encourage you to do, maybe that's another experiment for you to do while we're reading this. There's 12 chapters. We're going to be in this book for about eight or nine weeks, and, and there's seven days in a week, and the chapters aren't that long. So I wonder how many times you could read 
12 chapters if you just read a chapter a day. You just read one chapter a day. I wonder how many times you can. Maybe that's something you could try that's new and just see how your life might be measurably different. That's what Solomon was doing. But if you continue reading Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you'll see that even his wisdom, he finds in verses 12 and following, he finds that there's just, it, it just seems like the, you know, the sun rises and sets on the wise and on the foolish. And it seems like that the wise and the foolish, it rains on them, to, on both of them the same. And both of them end up dying at some point. And even if you're really, really wise, at some point you die and you might have to give all the, all the things you gained in wisdom, you might have to give to a fool after you're dead. And so he, he finds that there's vanity in wisdom and, and in pleasure and in money. He finds vanity in all these things. And then at the end of chapter 2, in verses 18 all the way through the end, he finds that it's vanity in his work. You know, I work really hard and I produce some really cool things and people from all over the world come to talk to me, Solomon would say. And they ask my opinion and they, they want me to consult with them and tell them things and help them become better at things. And I've done all those things and it just all seems like vanity. You know what vanity is? Vanity, vanity is what happens when selfishness meets hopelessness. When, when selfishness meets hopelessness, that's what vanity is. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that emptiness inside from, I did all the right things all the right ways and, and still, and I got everything that I wanted, but still, it, I still just feel empty inside? And maybe, maybe you did all the right things all the right, all right ways and, and you didn't get anything you wanted. And now you feel empty inside. Or maybe you just know you've messed up over and over again. I've just made mistakes. I've broken my own life. I've broken the lives of others. Maybe you know all that to be true. It just feels like vanity, doesn't it? Hopelessness with a little bit of selfishness thrown in. You see, that's what Solomon is really struggling through. And he's doing it under the authority of and through the blessing of the wisdom of God. What's it going to take for me and you to get it if we're not as wise as Solomon? You see, he wrote this stuff down so that we could learn something and so that we could become a little more wise ourselves. And here's what I think we're going to find at the end of the day. This, this is kind of the entire premise. And I'm going to tell you that this is the premise for today. But I actually believe that this premise is far bigger than today. And it's this. It's this idea that without Jesus, without Jesus, every worthwhile thing becomes a source of empty dissatisfaction. The end of the matter, all is heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For, for surely this is the whole duty of man. Isn't that Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13? It's the one we're trying to memorize. Without Jesus... Every worthwhile thing becomes a source of just empty dissatisfaction. And uh, I have a friend who I grew up with in Moore, Oklahoma. We went to the same elementary school together in high school. Then he went off to OU and he became an architect. And then uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, he opened his own architectural firm. And there was a time in his life, because I knew him, there was a season in his life when he was just broke. He was about to file for bankruptcy. He was in debt up to his eyeballs, he would say. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, you know. And that's just miserably, financially in, in a bad shape. And then he opens this architectural firm and he starts signing some contracts. And he tells me about this phone call that he got from his accountant one day. And I'd love, I'm, I'm sure all of us in this room would love to get a phone call like this. Um, because the accountant calls him. He's signed some contracts with some schools to do some architectural work. And the architect says, okay, Mike, I've got some questions for you. Uh, here's the most important one. 
what do you want me to do with all this money? <laughs> uh, wouldn't you like to get a call like that sometime? So after nearly filing for bankruptcy and just financial ruin, now he's in a space in his life where he's got a lot of money. And then, and then he goes through some struggles inside his family. And now he's got, he's not on the verge of bankruptcy, but he's got a lot of money. And now his life is just, he's just going through struggles. And he sat down again with me again. We were talking about the struggles he was going through. And he said, he said, you know what I've learned? I've learned that money can't buy happiness, but it can buy a better quality of misery is what it can do. I actually think Ecclesiastes chapter 2 reveals that. That whatever you have, whatever you can do, whatever influence you think you can exert, whatever you can build, however much popularity or power that you think all of those things are true, all those things are awesome, and I just need a little bit more, I don't think you can ever have enough. I don't think enough is ever really enough without the right context. And that's why I say without Jesus, every worthwhile thing becomes a source of empty dissatisfaction. Um, money can buy you a better class of misery, which is what he was experiencing at that time. Without Jesus, every, which, which, which worthwhile things? Every. Oh, now let me ask that again. Which worthwhile things? Yeah. Every worthwhile thing becomes a source of empty dissatisfaction. That's what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tells us. Now, there's some quick principles that I want us to catch. These principles are actually found in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. But the first one that's the most important is that knowing and honoring God is the only purpose. Knowing and honoring God is the only purpose that really brings satisfaction. Knowing and honoring God. That's Ecclesiastes verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion of the matter. After I've run all of my tests and done all of my experiments, the conclusion of the matter, all else has been heard. Fear God. Honor God. Revere God. Respect God. And keep his commandments. Knowing and honoring God is the only purpose that brings real satisfaction. There was a man in the New Testament. His name was Paul. Paul was an apostle of Christ, but before he was an apostle, he was a Pharisee. He was someone who fought against Christ, and maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you came today just as a favor to a friend or just to get somebody off your back, and you're like, I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or I really don't know or care, and I'm just not into this church scene, and you're just pushing back on it. That was Paul. Paul was one of those men who pushed back on Christianity and said, this can't possibly be true. He actually pushed back so hard that he terrorized Christians, and at times he... He killed them at times. He had the authority to do that. And then Paul has this remarkable experience with Jesus on the road to, Disma to Damascus. And, and Paul is transformed from the inside out. And in Galatians, he tells his story. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, he says, They were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us, now he preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. And so if you're one of those people who's here today and you push back against the gospel and you say it can't possibly be true and I don't really like church and I don't really like these church things, be careful because Paul became that guy who they were hearing only. He formerly persecuted us, but now he preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. Maybe you're on the road to becoming a preacher because you're pushing back so hard on what the gospel may be. But Paul said something interesting in Philippians chapter 3. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me real quick. It's in the New Testament toward the end of your Bible. If you need to use the table of contents to get there, that's great. It'll also be on the screen as well. But Philippians chapter 3, here's, here's what Paul thought about knowing and honoring God. Here's how important this was to him. He was a Pharisee. He was popular. He was powerful. He was prominent. He was all of these things. And Paul says this 
in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, I'm going to pause right there. This is the ESV version of Scripture, but when I was younger, I memorized this verse in the Amplified Version, and it's become my life verse. And in, in the beginning of that, in that beginning of that, in the Amplified Version, Paul says, for my determined purpose is to know God, that I may progressively become more deep, deeply and intimately acquainted with him and with the power outflowing from him. If by any means I may be conformed into his likeness and may attain the resurrection from the dead. That first phrase in the amplified version of Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 is the defining verse of my life. For my determined purpose is to know God. What's the determined purpose of your life? It doesn't have to be from scripture. I think that's a great source for it though. Do you, have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about what the purpose behind your life really is? Paul says, my determined purpose is to know him and the power, verse 10, of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting that, that which lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. What's your determined purpose? What's the purpose of your life? See, see the, the idea here is that really knowing and honoring God, knowing and honoring God, is the, it's the only worthwhile thing. It's the only thing that brings lasting satisfaction. And if you go back to that lens of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Verse 13, the conclusion of matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That becomes the next idea that scripture is the only reliable standard for lasting success. This book, scripture, it's the only reliable standard for lasting. Well, how can I, I know what scripture says. How do I, how come I feel so bad? Well, it's because there's a difference between an objective standard and a subjective standard. You know, in football, there's a goal line, right? You cross the goal line with the ball, you make a touchdown, you score six points, you score the point after, you get seven points. That's an objective standard. The, 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 the line judge and the umpire, they, they, all, they all get to take a look at that and go, you, you scored. Good job. You scored. If you don't cross the line, guess what happened? You didn't score. If you're OU, you cross the line a lot. If you're OSU, you wonder where the line is. You see how that, you see how that works? See how that works? Sorry, I had to just a little bit. I'm missing football season a lot right now. Um, that's an objective standard. But you know what? There's a subjective standard out there too. The subjective standard is how do I feel about it? How do I feel about it? What do I think? What color do I think that is? We were talking a minute ago about colors on the screen and um, a friend sent me a text and said, what color are these shoes? And I saw pink and white and they said, no, 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 they're green and gray. And I'm like, mm, no, they're pink and white. And we're having this argument. It's a subjective standard instead of an, an objective standard. We ought to measure our lives. Scripture, 
This is the only reliable, objective standard of success. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking scientifically, and I'm not talking mathematically, though I believe when it speaks scientifically and mathematically and financially, when it makes statements about those things, I believe it's accurate. But I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that this is in competition with those things. It's, it's really not. I'm just saying that for the quality of your life, for the purpose of your life, for the way your relationships ought to be managed and ought to be run, for the way you interact with people, for the job that you do in your career, for the place that you live, for the people that you serve with, for the attitudes of your heart, this standard is the only standard that will bring lasting success. And honoring God by honoring this word is the only way you'll feel, you'll understand, you'll experience lasting satisfaction. So it's another reason, maybe over the course of these next few weeks, to maybe change your habits. Maybe you never pick this book up and read it. Try it for a few weeks. Yeah, but I don't believe it. Well, when was the last time you read anything because you believed it? I read the internet all the time, and everything on that's true, right? <laughs> I, I saw that quote from Abraham Lincoln, everything on the internet's true. It was printed on a blurry picture, so it has to be true, right? Yeah, when was the last? You don't read the newspaper because you believe it's true. You don't read anything because you believe it. You read it because it's there to be read, right? And it informs the way you think. And here's what I've done. I've read this book long enough. I believe it. There's a lot of people around you right now today, they believe it too. There's a lot of people outside this room all over the world for generations, for thousands of years. There's a lot of people who have been looking to this book for godly wisdom, for lasting success, for, for fulfillment and for satisfaction. They've been, and they've not just been looking to it, they've been, they've been finding it. And so let me challenge you, encourage you, pick the book up, read it. Start in Ecclesiastes. What a great place to start. But this, this is the place. Scripture is the only place you're going to do that. And, and there's a reason for that. And it's another verse in Scripture. It's in First Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this. It says, all Scripture, all of this, Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. Now, I'm going to stop right there at the word profitable, but the verse goes on. What's it profitable for? It's, well, it's profitable for doctrine and for, for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. So it's profitable for all these good things that, that if we just listen and if we just follow, if we surrender, if we obey what this says, it's the kind of things that really just make our lives better. I'm so thankful my mom and dad get to be here today. They're back there. You can wave at them if you want to. My mom used to say that this book, whether you believe it or not, if you do what it says, it'll just make your life better. If you'll just do it. And it'll make you better at life. Whether you believe it or not, just, just follow it. See what it says. Well, I'm going to say I believe it. And it has made my life better. And it has made me better at life. But I think there's a reason for it. And it's that word profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable. What does it mean for something to be profitable? Well, it means I got more out of it than I put into it. Right? You, you take a little dollar and you invest that dollar in a bank account that earns a little bit of interest. And guess what? You've earned a profit. You've earned some money that you didn't have before. You got more out of it. You, you have a garage sale. I bought this thing for $10 and somebody came along and bought it for $15. That's not the way my garage sales work. That's not the. I bought it for $25 and I sold it for a quarter. You know, that's the way my garage sales work. But... Profitable is the opposite of that. You bought it for 10, you sold it for 15, you made $5 profit. You got more out of it than you put into it. All scripture is breathed out by God and you'll get more out of it 
than you'll ever be able to put into it. How do I find lasting satisfaction? The only things that are worthwhile in life are the lasting satisfaction that comes from knowing and doing what this word says because it's what, it's what reveals to us our ability to know and to honor our Heavenly Father who's done so much for us and really in us and through us. And there's a principle that we see here that you've heard me. I haven't actually said the principle yet, but you've been hearing what it really means, and you're going to understand it when I say it. And it's this simple idea that ultimate is greater than immediate. Ultimate. In your decision-making, in the way you approach life, in the way you approach your job or your spouse, in the way you approach your kids, ultimate purpose is always greater than immediate gratification. It's always, always greater than that. Uh, Olympic athletes, you see this in Olympic athletes a lot. They, will, they have this ultimate purpose, and that is to win a gold medal, right? They have this ultimate purpose to win a gold medal. And so they sacrifice carbs and calories, and they sacrifice their time with friends and family, and they work out, and they practice, and they train, and they train, and they train. They give up their immediate gratification. They give all that up so that they can experience their ultimate purpose, which is to stand on that top on that top layer and, and win the gold medal for their, for their nation, right? Ultimate purpose is greater than immediate gratification. You can see that. Ten years ago, I weighed 50 pounds more than I do today. And I had this ultimate purpose in mind. I want to feel better. I want to look better. I want to be better. I want to be able to play with my kids on the floor uh, and my grandkids someday. I want to be able to pick them up and not hurt. I want to be able to do all of those things. So... Because I had that ultimate purpose in mind, I was able to give up for a little while the immediate gratification of all those cookies. <laughs> and even today, I, 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 pay, I pay attention to what I, to what I eat and how I eat it. It's made me more healthy, and I'm 50 pounds lighter as a result of it. Um, doesn't mean I'm living a healthy lifestyle. It just means I'm living a healthier lifestyle. Doesn't mean I've, just like Paul says, not that I have attained or that I've already, but I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I've given up some of my immediate gratification because I have this ultimate purpose that is so much better. So much better. And you know what? That ultimate purpose and that immediate gratification, they go together because in God's eyes, the ultimate and the immediate, they combine. The ultimate and the immediate, they combine. Um, you saw probably in the news a few days ago that the cathedral at Notre Dame in Paris, you saw that it caught fire. Um, and I, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it. And some of you have probably seen the Disney movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you can sing the songs and those kinds of things. But that cathedral, is a, it's a remarkable work of architecture. It's a beautiful place. It took 182 years to build that cathedral. And it's amazing how our subjective minds influence our objective goals. It's amazing the ways our immediate gratification, our desire for immediate gratification, influences the way we think about our ultimate purpose. My previous pastor, Dr. Ferguson, he, he used to tell a story about some guys who were building a cathedral just like Notre Dame. And it's probably an apocryphal story. It may not have ever happened. But in the story, he would say that, that this priest is walking through. I mean, think about this. This is a building that takes 182 years to build. Five generations of people are going to work on this building. So that's how long it took to build Notre Dame. You go into this knowing you're never going to finish. You're going to die before the project is finished when you're building a cathedral. There were these two masons, two bricklayers. And one of them was always miserable and one of them was always happy. And this priest is walking through watching these two bricklayers lay bricks, masons, in this cathedral. And he, he, he pulls the miserable guy aside and he says, why, why are you so unhappy? 
All I do is lay bricks all day. I come in, I make the bricks, I make the mortar, I put them in place. and I do it all day long. It's back-breaking, it's hard, I sweat, I don't make that much money, and things are just terrible. I go to bed and I get up and do it again the next day. It's terrible. I'm just miserable all the time because all I do is lay bricks. And so the next day the priest walks through and he, he pulls the other guy aside, who's also a bricklayer and also a mason, making exactly the same money, doing exactly the same task, uh, on exactly the same project. But he's always happy. He's always in a good mood. So the priest pulls him aside and says, hey, I'm, I'm just doing a little experiment here, like I've asked you guys to do. I'm just, doing a little, I'm just asking some questions. Why is it that you're always, why are you so happy doing this job? He goes, well, I know it looks like I'm brain, laying bricks. Looks like I'm, looks like I'm just putting some mortar in place. But you, you know what I'm doing? I'm building a cathedral. I'm building this tower. This tower is going to stand for thousands of years. And I get to build it. And someday, my children's children are going to walk into this room. And they're going to say, my grandfather made that. I'm not just laying bricks. I'm, I'm building a cathedral. Both guys making the same money, doing the same thing. One's miserable. One satisfied. One was giving in to their immediate gratification. I'm tired. I don't make enough. This is terrible. One was giving in to this ultimate purpose. See, ultimate purpose, is always, it always trumps. It always trumps immediate gratification. But if you, get, if you get your ultimate purpose right, immediate gratification shows up in the same space and in the same place. Isn't that amazing? I keep debating right now over whether or not I should give this illustration because it has to do with sexuality and with our sex. But when, when you think about the physical relationship between a husband and wife, specifically between a husband and wife, that's a space where God says ultimate purpose and immediate gratification come together. God says in the context of a marriage between a husband and wife, the physical relationship is beautiful and blessed. And outside the context of a married husband and wife, outside that context, it's less than blessed. It's actually something far less. It's just immediate gratification. It's just self-satisfaction. And there's nothing eternal and nothing glorious about it. But in the context of a husband and wife, somehow God goes, it's transformed. Because the immediate and the ultimate, they combine for the sake of pleasure for the sake of purpose, for the sake of something bigger than the two of you together. And it's amazing to see how that works. I want to show you something to, to, as, as I wrap this up. Because the question may be, how do I find ultimate purpose and, and, and not always give in to immediate gratification? How do I do that? What, 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 what do I do that? Well, first off, we need to realize that humanity's major mistake is that we give primary, primary effort to secondary concerns. That's our biggest mistake. We give primary efforts to secondary concerns. We put the, the cart before the horse sometimes. Man's major, humanity's major mistake is that we give primary effort to secondary concerns. That's the first thing we, we, we need to realize. We need to, we need to honor the fact that I, I want my ultimate purpose to be far bigger, to be far more significant than my immediate gratification. I'm willing, up, I'm willing to give up this thing that I love for this thing that I love even more. There's, there ought to be a willingness in there. It, because I, I'm going to give up this thing I love, chocolate, ice cream, whatever, fill in the blank, cookies. I'm going to give up my need for immediate gratification. I'm going to give that up for this ultimate purpose that I have. And, and the food example is really just a lighthearted example, right? I'm gonna, so that's, a, that's, another, that's another approach for how we can do that. But, but what I want to show you next is the spiritual foundation for what's actually going on inside your heart and mine 
as we approach these things. And so I'm going to click you through some things. It ultimately has to do with who's in control of your life. And, and on this, you've seen this chair really on every slide we've seen so far. The circle represents the scope of your life. So the circle represents your life. Think of the chair as the person who's in control. You know, whoever sits in that chair, they're the ones in charge, right? They're, they're in the chair, they're in charge, right? So that, that's how that works. So ask yourself that question, even as we look at this, who's in charge of your life? Who's in control of your life? Inside, what, what comes inside the scope and the circle of your life? You get to decide that. Who's sitting on the chair of your life? Here's what Solomon did through Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He put, he, he did this test, and he put accomplishments as the center of his life. I'm going to fulfill my need for immediate gratification, and so pleasure, myself, myself is inside the scope of my life. Christ is outside the scope of my life, but I'm going to try to use things like pleasure, and I'm going to try to use things like wisdom. He tried wisdom in the, in the second part of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Work, all the toil of my hands. I'm going to put work is going to be my immediate gratification. I'm going to build big things and do cool stuff, and people are going to know my name. I'm going to make a lot of money, and that's going to be what controls my life. My need for immediate bill paying is going to control my life. Or I want to have influence. I want to be able to walk into the room, and when I when I speak, people listen. You know, I want to be able to do that. Uh, popularity. I'm going to be the most popular person in the room, the most prominent. Everybody's going to know my name. Man, there's so many. I've got musicals in my head at times, but uh, there's a, a musical called The Greatest Showman, and there's a song called Never Enough. All the stars and all the night skies will never be enough. And when I think of people who put accomplishments as center, popularity as center, those are those kind of people we're fulfilling our immediate need for satisfaction. And all that really does is lead to frustration. So this is a way you can do a litmus test in your own heart right now. If the, if the default position of your life is frustration, there's a reason for it. And it's because something like one of those things is sitting on the chair that rules your life. And did you notice, well, I'm going to go back one, notice the word self. See how it's nice and bright? At somewhere, at some point, you just sort of lose yourself a little bit because you're just so frustrated. And Christ is outside your life, and you never can get to the ultimate, and anything that might resemble satisfaction in your life, man, it just flees from you all the time. It just feels like you're chasing satisfaction all the time. That's what happens when accomplishments are at the center. Sometimes it's not about accomplishments being at the center of your life. Sometimes you're just, you're at the center of your life. That's enough. That's enough of me talking about me. What do you think about me? You know, that's, uh, the self is at the center. Sometimes I thought I was wrong once, but I found out I was mistaken. I thought I was conceited until I found out I was perfect. You know, you just you keep the self right in the center of who you are. And again, something similar happens. You think, I'm still just dissatisfied. Maybe I'll try something religious. I know, I'll just add a little Jesus to my life. I'll start coming to church, and I'll just, I'll just add a little Jesus to my life. That's what I'll do. But... Jesus isn't really sitting as the one who rules your life, as the one who's in charge of your life. You just kind of added a little bit of Jesus to your life. You just added some more tasks. I don't need another meeting, and if that's all church is, I'm not sure why I come. So you just added another meeting to your life. But you know what ends up happening is ultimately, even if Christ is a part of your life, his influence is diminished. Because you didn't really add Jesus as the authority in your life. You just kind of added him like you'd add another hobby. Jesus is not going to be treated like a hobby by y'all, y'all. He's not going to do that. And so his influence diminishes, and the effect is like he's outside your life. And you're just left feeling empty. And actually, your condition feels worse than ever before because you think you tried the right thing. I tried Jesus, and it didn't work. No, I'm not sure you actually tried Jesus. I'm not sure you did. 
Which leads us to that other idea that, again, immediate becomes satisfied, but ultimate is never, ever satisfied. So ultimate runs from you, and your satisfaction runs from you. You're just always chasing something else. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon says it's like you're chasing after the wind. So there's another option. The other option isn't to add a little Jesus to your life. The other option is simply to surrender and to submit to him. To let him take the seat of control in your life. For you to say to Jesus, all that I am, all that I ever will be, that's what I give to you. Warts and all. I know it's not much, God, but I'm going to give it to you. Do with it whatever you want to. When Jesus is at the center and the heart of your life, when he's the one you surrender and submit to, when he's the controller, you know what he does is he starts to build your life, the foundation of your life. He starts to build it on those ultimate things, ultimate purpose questions, the big picture questions of life. He starts building those things on the ultimate and the immediate becomes satisfied. You see how that works? He begins building your life on the ultimate and and he starts showing you, hey, this is that area you're given into the immediate too often. Let me show you what the ultimate is. And all of a sudden, you get the order of things right. And, and what comes out of that is satisfaction. So now the satisfaction you've been pursuing, well, it's been there all along. Not because of you, but because Christ brought it with him. And he placed it in you, maybe even in spite of you. There's a verse. It's Romans chapter 14, verse 17. It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And the Holy Spirit. Maybe today what you feel is empty. You just add a little Jesus, but you've never really given your life to him. Maybe you feel frustrated. And it's because you're chasing the wind. Chasing all of these accomplishments. You see, that leads us to the the point. In conclusion, when all else is heard, fear God and keep his commandments. What does that look like for us? How do you overcome that frustration and that anger, emptiness? Well, surrender to Jesus as your first choice and your only hope. You know you're broken. I am too. And I need his forgiveness. And so do you. So this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to respond, not to what I've said, but to what Solomon said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you can continue to walk in the frustration that you feel. You can continue in the emptiness. You can continue to pursue immediate gratification. And I can guarantee you, your results will be exactly the same. Isn't that the definition of insanity? To do the same thing over and over and over again and expect that you're going to get different results? Do the experiment Solomon did. Try something different. Don't just try it. Surrender to Jesus Christ as your first choice and your only hope. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful to you for all that you've given to us. I'm grateful for who you are and what you've done in my life. And Father, I don't get it right all the time. There are so many times when I let immediate things get in the way of ultimate things. There are so many times when I try to push you out of the chair of control in my life. And I try to take over again. And I really do want things like influence and money and popularity and power and pleasure. I want all those things, God. But Father, please, please, please help me to see those things the way you do. Help me to understand that when you are the one who moves my life forward, that all of those things are satisfied. 
that genuine satisfaction, that the ultimate and the immediate, they come together at the foot of the cross. So help me to understand that and help me to make each choice each day just like that. And Father, if there's someone in this room today who needs to place their faith in you, I pray that they would. I pray that they would, that they would give themselves, that they would surrender to you today, that each one of us here today would surrender to you as our first choice and our only hope. We love you, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And as we stand, this altar's open. Maybe you're a believer and you just need to come to the altar and pray and say, God, I, wanna, I, want, you to be, I want you to be number one in my life. I want to surrender to you. Maybe you're someone who hasn't placed their faith in Christ yet and you want to know more about what that means. Will there be people here who'd be glad to talk to you about it? Just come forward and say, I don't want to know more about that. Could you, can we talk about that? We'll be glad to talk with you about it. We'd love to do that. But this altar's open. Let's sing together. And as we sing, let's pray and let's surrender to our Heavenly Father.